You pick four films. Now one of them is going to space. It is the finale of our listener pick anniversary month. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by Amy Nicholson. Welcome to the show. Five years in, Amy, it's been a pleasure doing the show with you. And for this last month, we have turned the wheel, given the reins to the people who listen to the show, the people who have made this show successful in the last five years. Thank you for listening to us first and foremost. But it should just go to show you how much we trust you, how much we believe in what you want us to do, because you picked four great films, four films that we did not cover in the entire time that we've been doing this show. There were There Will Be Blood, Hot Fuzz, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and of course, Children of Men. All great choices. I actually have a question for our listeners, because I do trust you and your judgment so much. In the five years that Paul and I have been doing this show... Has our singing improved at all in the yeah, opening? I, I mean, I worse. feel like our timing has not improved at all. I feel like we're still really off time. Yeah, we're always getting. I mean, this is we're <laughs> we're not figuring that out. We've not we've yet to figure that out. Uh, well, then I want to say thank you, listeners, for bearing with five years of opening podcast karaoke. Maybe someday we'll like really sit down and practice. Probably not. There's not really a tune that we have to be hitting. I mean, that, that's the other part of it, too. Maybe we should be hitting a different yeah. tune. Wait, uh, I would do anything for pods. Uh, oh, no, no now, I, now I think it's worse. Uh, <laughs> karaoke aside, it's been a pleasure, and this last month has been great. We probably will do more of these in the future, but let's get to the issue at hand, which is picking one of these films, one of these films to go on our list to outer space. That means that this will be forever on our list. It was picked by you, and we are making our decision simply based on what you think. We're not adding our own two cents here. We do that a lot. This is for you. We're just going to help mediate that because not everybody who listens to the show can be in the studio with us right now. It's a COVID precaution thing. So, uh, you know, last time we had uh, you know, like 500,000 people in here. It was a real mess. A lot of microphones. So Ugh, we'll the get basketball it. players were touching all the microphones. <laughs> all right, Amy. So let's get into it. Our four films that listeners picked, they were an eclectic bunch. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Hot Fuzz, There Will Be Blood, and Children of Men. Now, just based on that, when you saw this list, what was your immediate feeling? Honestly, I had two feelings. One feeling was a wellspring of pride. That was just like, those are good choices. Those are solid choices. And that pride was mixed with a little bit of shame. Oh man, we really should have covered those already. I can't believe we didn't cover those already. And then the tiniest little bit of like, are y'all serious about Hot Fuzz? I will admit, when Hot Fuzz was on that list over every single other Edgar Wright movie, I said to you, I was like, are we getting Bodie McBoatfaced? Is there like a little <laughs> corner of the internet being like, we're going to put Hot Fuzz on the top 100 list and it will be our inside joke? And no. I was I was a little bit nervous and then also anticipatory to rewatch it and see what we thought. Well, I 100% agree with you. It just really shows the scope of the show and our audience being so smart. 
But I was really kind of enamored with the idea of what all these films represent. And it's change. And I think we are living in a society right now where a lot of the questions are, well, this has a positive front-facing face, but what is going on behind the scenes? And there is this idea of being tricked, being lied to, and uncovering that. And each one of these films is about that. You know, whether it's blatantly about the resistance fighting against the evil corporations that are polluting the earth and children of men, or maybe it's hot fuzz. It's a peaceful town where there's like this weird thing lurking underneath. Or, you know, when you go to a movie like There Will Be Blood, we're watching the growth of corporations and and how it just rips people apart and takes the soul out of them. And Roger Rabbit kind of has elements of all of that. I mean, Roger Rabbit is such an interesting version for a kid's movie, a family film, it does have this seedier undertone. It's a kid's version of Chinatown. And I just thought all these movies are essentially the same, or maybe these are the movies that we resonate with because these are the battles that we are constantly facing. You know, being comfortable or being lied to in our comfort. Is our comfort just hiding a big bad behind it? Wait, that's fascinating hearing you phrase it that way. Because you're right, I'm thinking about like our first protagonist and our last protagonist. We're going from Eddie Valiant to Theo Farron, going from Roger Rabbit to Children of Men. And they're actually a lot alike. They're both kind of former optimists who once loved a thing, loved being in Toontown, loved this idea of participating in like an uprising against the society. Hopes got smashed, wound up losing someone they loved, got heartbroken, and now they drink way too much. Way, way, way too much. They're both known for drinking too much. I mean, they they treat booze with Theo Fair in the same way they treat it with Eddie Valiant. Here, listen to me. I'm Chiwetel Ejiofor. I'm giving you three beers at a bar so you will do me a favor because I understand how you work. It's actually almost the same character in a lot of ways. It's just instead of protecting a young mother and her baby, you're protecting a rabbit. And, you know, and hot fuzz a swan. Uh, but there are <laughs> there's so many things that I think make these movies resonate. And I, I love that they can be told in such different styles. I mean, we have hard sci-fi. We have period drama. We have an animated hybrid. And then we have really just a big old comedy, you know, with, with sight gags and and wordplay. It just goes to show you that there's so many ways to tackle an issue. It doesn't always have to be one point of view to get out something that is a heavy idea. But ultimately, as we look at these films, it doesn't matter what we think. It's what the audience thinks. And since the beginning of this, we have gone to our audience and we said, tell us why. Tell us why you think one of these movies deserves to be on the list of 100 films that we are sending to space, the API list, the Paul and Amy Institute list. Because when you pick it, it's going to be on there in perpetuity. We cannot take it off. You voted it on. And people called. People left messages. And we combined the best from the original vote and the votes after the episode to talk about what movies really resonate with people. And I know you already voted for them, but I wanted to really hear from them. Like people like Kevin, or Kev, I should say, who says, Roger Rabbit fucks. And you know, that may not be the most, uh, you know, wordy uh, review of it, but I would say it captures uh, an element, uh, you know, like if we were to say to the aliens, like, why is Roger Rabbit on this list? Well, Roger Rabbit fucks. They'd be like, yeah, we get it. We get it. 
The alien would be like, I would like to watch that other video where the rabbit is <laughs> fucking, please. Oh, man. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a ton that I want to read out, but I want to say Tyler Ryan wrote in before we did our There Will Be Blood episode and threw down a gauntlet for me. He said, I need to hear Amy make a connection between the straight-talking oil tycoon Daniel Plainview and the number one song in the country on 12-2707, No One by Alicia Keys. I think Tyler thought I couldn't do it. And do you remember that I came up with the fact that Alicia Keys sells face oil? She is an oil baron. I appreciate that you are so invested in this quest. Thank you, Tyler. You have my sword and my milkshake. Uh, Well, I want to go to Kelly, who writes, Animated films in general deserve more respect than they get. The amount of time, effort, and craftsmanship that goes into the quality animation is stress time. And again and again, we need to make a stand on behalf of the creators, especially the hand-drawn era stuff. This film was an absolute marvel. It's meshing animation and live action, forging a ceasefire, however brief, between Disney and Warner. And how are you dare going to say that sad dystopias with no babies, Daniel Day-Lewis screaming at Paul Dano, and goofy cops can hold even the merest candle to the craftsmanship and artistry of Roger Rabbit. I'd like to see Daniel Day-Lewis method act all the way through a film half as bonkers as that. And what I would say to that is, have you seen Eight and a Half, where Daniel Day-Lewis really does show off his comedy chops in that? Did you see that movie? I did see Eight and a Half. I I love that movie because it's the only movie that Daniel Day-Lewis didn't have time to prepare for. Like, that's a big part of it. Like, he didn't get a chance to really figure it out. So it's a little bit more of him flying on the seat of his pants. And I think that that performance is lovely. It's a little bit more goofy and bigger than others. But I mean, I think that what Kelly brings up here, and I don't want to shame any of the other films, but animated films often do get overlooked, right? Roger Rabbit, as Mike says, is a groundbreaking film. It's it's a level of craft, shooting, editing, acting, animation, storytelling that is just staggering. It's one of a kind, but it is also seeing ahead of the filmmaking that we would use in the CGI era. No film blends live action and animation as well. And I agree. And I think that that movie sets the stage for the Spider-Verse movies or Mitchell's in the Machines or Pixar. You know, there, there are these movies that really push the envelope and animation, I think, has been getting more and more acclaimed, but it's still best animated movie, not movie. Like what they did here is groundbreaking. No other film that we talked about in this four is as groundbreaking as Roger Rabbit. We can agree to that, right? I mean, my heart says yes, but I really intellectually want to think on that for a second because there was something about seeing There Will Be Blood on a big screen where you thought, oh, wow, this is a wallop. It felt groundbreaking. But when I do make the case to my head, I'm like, it is also just a classic, classic, classic epic. It's like a throwback classic 1920s epic. It felt groundbreaking because we don't get many of them. Look, in many ways, There Will Be Blood exists in a lot of open fields with oil derricks. It's not really like they created this whole city or world. Like We're living relatively in a handful of locations. So I think while, yes, it is absolutely stunning and gorgeous, I don't think that the work there is unique in the sense of, oh my gosh, we've never seen this done before. That's what I'm kind of talking about. I, I'm not taking anything away from it, but we've seen great period films before. That is true. But would you say we've seen something exactly like Children of Men before? I mean, a, a sci-fi movie that was so like wonderfully thought out in every single frame, that every single frame you could pause and like scan it and see something compelling that like adds to the story, a little scribble of graffiti, a little bit of a newspaper headline. A movie with that much detail, like that movie is just 
built and constructed with a microscope on every single element of it. Well, I mean, not to just be the devil's advocate of all of this, but I would say, yes, District 9 is pretty amazing in that way, too. District 9 really created a full world. Really, what Children of Men did was create a beautiful story. But as far as visually, I don't think that they did something that was that groundbreaking. Like, yes, the cinematography. I mean, I do have to point out for everybody who's screaming with me that District 9 did come out after Children of Men. Okay. Okay. That's, that is a good point. A good point. All right. I mean, so it could be like saying cool world. Not since we had cool world, maybe Roger Rabbit's. Ah, you know, I gotcha. I gotcha. It's hard to pit these movies against each other. I don't want to be like ripping down children of men. I don't want to be ripping down. There will be blood. I just want to be calling attention to that in these four, this is the most wholly unique from a craftsmanship perspective, right? Because by the way, If you want to talk about similarities, too, we didn't talk about this. Children of Men and Hot Fuzz share a set. Did you know that? Uh, At the end. Yes. When the when the the precinct blows up at the end of Hot Fuzz, that is a Children of Men set. (laughs) I mean, though, kind of on that same note of like, who creates the full of bothers that come before and after and since then? Marty had a really lovely comment that took a twist at the end. Marty said, not only is Roger Rabbit a good film, it is a triumph of special effects work. It helped kick off the modern era of animation. Ever since Roger Rabbit, U.S. cartoons have been self-conscious of and frequently reflect on their own history as a medium. Whether that's through playing with Disney princess stereotypes, making direct references to Acme and old Warner Brothers gags, or The Simpsons making jokes about Peter Griffin ripping off Homer and Homer being a rip on Fred Flintstone. Adult Swim thrives on this kind of riffing. I don't think we had that self-consciousness before Roger Rabbit, says Marty, to say nothing of the movie's influence in other areas. Space Jam obviously wouldn't exist without Roger Rabbit. Good point, Marty. Neither would the second Space Jam. This is me editorializing now, the one with LeBron. Um, But films that incorporate 3D animation with live action wouldn't be the same either. This was one of the first films to heavily incorporate compositing and have major characters who were not visible on set. Animators who worked on it, such as Williams and Baxter, are considered legendarily skilled artists. And who would have ever cast Bob Hoskins as Mario if not for this movie? So we also have Roger Rabbit to thank for Super Mario Brothers 1993. People love to get in a Super Mario Brothers thing. I'm never going to give it up. That movie is not good. Uh, <laughs> but I know that last line. I was like, oh, Marty, you nailed this point. And then I was like, oh, dear. Oh, no, Marty. <laughs> Well, then how about if we go compliment the craft of the next film on our list? What if okay. we compliment Hot Fuzz? Because Evan wrote in with a point that actually hit home. He said, Hot Fuzz has perfect editing. All caps perfect. Hot Fuzz has perfect editing. If you remove a single scene, something else in the movie collapses. Everything in there has to be in there. And that is, I would say, dead on, actually, Evan. It is a masterpiece in how to edit a movie together. Well, this is, I think, something that Edgar Wright prides himself on. One of the things that you could watch that shows his exacting detail to me is Scott Pilgrim. That movie is done in such an exciting and interesting way, but it's so technically perfect that there is no room for 
fat. There's no room for improvisation. It is just a fully crafted artistic vision. And I think you can see in these earlier films that starting to bubble up. I think he has gotten better and better at it. I also think he's kind of found a middle ground between those two things as well. But I'm always impressed with that. And to continue on with that, you know, Sarah says there's not a single second, not a single joke wasted. It's packed with British humor, great acting, great callbacks, action, mystery, intrigue, and murder. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost have such good chemistry in this movie and their friendship is endearing. It's a perfect movie. And I say almost it's a perfect movie because nothing in this world is perfect. And I agree with that. Like this is a a movie where it's a comedy film that is as tight and as taut as an action film. And I know a lot of people are like, well, I made I like Hot Fuzz because I don't like bad boys and stuff like that. It's like you don't even need to like bad boys. It's not it's not a meta movie. It it's a movie in which these characters can be affected by Michael Bay, but this is not mo- a movie making fun of Michael Bay. It's not a movie that is even aping that style. I think Edgar Wright's a better director than just stealing shots. I think he's creating and capturing tonally certain things. He's embodying. It's not yes. like, it's not like Naked Gun. Yes. I mean, that's interesting though, because I think what I see when I look at like listener comments on Hot Fuzz is I see them making a completely different case from Roger Rabbit. You know, Roger Rabbit is groundbreaking. That's the big argument there. It's groundbreaking and it's fantastic. What I see when I look at the Hot Fuzz comments is I see that people just think it is masterfully crafted. Logan Given uses the word masterfully in his comment. It masterfully straddles both sides of every category of endearment. It's familiar, but very original. It's ridiculous, yet relatable. It has classic action tropes and incredible set pieces, yet at the same time, it mercilessly mocks buddy cop movies. It's comedy, it's tragedy, it's scary. It has Timothy fucking Dalton, the most underrated and underplayed James Bond, The story rhythm is seamless, and you can watch it again and again and again and still get drawn in every time. Hot fuzz, chef's kiss, says Logan. And that idea that this is a film that is kind of every film in one is something that I felt like I saw in a lot of these comments. You know, Eva writes in, it has a great mix of genres, comedy, horror, action, stellar cast who are just having the most fun making the film. And Eva writes, this is just the perfect setup and payoff film. So again, it's like construction and this combination of genres. Almost like Princess Bride, except Princess Bride also adds in romance. You know, it's like, I feel like Princess Bride is like one of the ultimate, like, I am every movie in one movie movie. Hot Fuzz has a lot of that, according to people writing in. Actually, let's hear from some of these people. Let's take a phone call. Paul and Amy, uh, this is Phil. I wanted to speak about the greatness of Hot Fuzz, and I think it's the rewatchability. I think the reason it won in a landslide it's because those people, those thousands of people that did that, love that movie because every time you watch it, it gets a little better and a little better and a little better. And something you didn't even realize you loved so much on a previous viewing, you'll find on a subsequent one that, that you just connected with it in a new kind of way. And I think that's why it is so popular and that's why it keeps going and going. Rewatchability. That's the other thing that comes up. This film is a smash-up of all the genres I love. This film is massively done. And rewatchability. I think rewatchability, I'm seeing it over and over again. Right. You're not going to pop in Children of Men or There Will Be Blood at a party. I mean, that's not like a uh, party movie. And some people actually talked about the party movie idea. I mean, actually, I feel like I've been to parties where people would watch There Will Be Blood. That sounds like a party I would have gone to. I do hang out with weird people. 
Hi, my name's Beck, and I live in Virginia, the United States. Um, I'm really into horror movies, so I'm partial to Shaun of the Dead, but I have to say that Hot Fuzz is my number one party movie. And by that, I mean it's just so funny and so snappy and just so interesting to watch that it's that crowd pleaser that I can count on anytime I have people over for a movie night. Personally, I love it for movie nerd things like editing and references and that particular brand of British humor that I love. But I also find that even though it's so British, it's one of the most accessible of Edgar Wright's movies because it's universally enjoyable and funny, even if he does point to specifically British things or use specifically British phrases. It doesn't matter when the dialogue is so clever and delivered so perfectly timed and quotably. Um, a friend of mine and I always say shame the way Nick Frost does <laughs> when he asks Simon Pegg if he told the guy to cool off after he tossed it into a freezer. Um, it also helps that it was during a hot fuzz movie night that I first hung out with my now fiance, um, but I'm not biased. So anyway, that's why I love hot fuzz. That's why I've seen it so many times, shared it with so many people for so many good times. Oh, Paul, I need to say that that voicemail melted the frozen Atlantic sea. That is my heart. Huh? That was so nervous that we got Bodie McBoat faced. That was really beautiful and sincere. I mean, I think that like, if you were going to make an argument, this is the most rewatchable one. I think this is the one that is the one that most people have seen probably the most. Now let's go to the next two movies. They're dramas, big movies. They're period pieces. But but what makes them worthy of the list? Let's find out. And because there are a lot of comments on these movies. Andrew Kozoff writes, it's the best film of everyone involved, which makes it better than most films. Now, that's an interesting point of view. It's the best film of everyone involved. So is it the best performance by Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah, may, may, maybe, maybe, maybe. Our, this episode made me feel like I have to rewatch Phantom Thread, but yeah. Is it the best performance by Paul Dano? Oh, I mean, it's going to be hard for me to like not put the Daniels movie where he's uh, hanging out with the farting corpse. I think he's pretty great in Batman, too. Yeah. Uh, I think he's really good in uh, Loma Sunshine as well. Yeah, uh, but it is a memorable performance. If I was going to be like listing the performances of Paul Dano that will be buried with him or maybe, I guess, projected as holograms on his grave. That's probably where we're headed. That would be very high <laughs> on the list. Would it be morbid if your tombstone was like a milkshake, but it was a hologram? And then like throughout the day, your milkshake got hologram drunk and then it was empty and then every day your milkshake was refilled again but it was like a metaphor about time i mean look if you want to figure out the technology behind that i can definitely make sure that i put a clause in the new uh, sag contract that doesn't allow that <laughs> Wait, would it be morbid if i gave up film criticism to think about hologram so gravestone technology and i made this my future you probably would make a lot more money you will make a lot more money by doing that i guarantee you that's the one thing i do know and I guess the final question is, is it Paul Thomas Anderson's greatest film? And I think the answer to that is no. That's the one thing that people have spoken about in the Discord a lot. This is not a movie that people consider his best film. I think you can make a strong argument 
for Boogie Nights. He can make a strong argument for Phantom Thread. He can make, I think he can make a strong argument for Magnolia. And the, the, the people out there who are my punch-drunk love heads are going to start yelling too. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Like there's so many. I don't think this is Paul Thomas Anderson's best film, but that's like a very tough question to ask. I think it's a very personal question to ask. But the same way with Edgar Wright, they are great filmmakers who make great films. I don't know if this is his greatest film. I mean, what I think is interesting... The is, Master. Oh, oh The Master. Gosh, I forgot about that. I feel like if you asked what his greatest film was nine years ago, people would have said There Will Be Blood when it was like yes. really, really fresh in people's heads. I think... Because I remember we did an old canon episode where we did Boogie Nights versus There Will Be Blood. And I was actually bereft for months by like how trounced Boogie Nights got by There Will Be Blood. Like, I was okay with it losing... But I wasn't okay with it getting destroyed. And it got destroyed. And I was rattled to my core. Like, it actually really shook me. I was like, how can everybody not understand or not recognize also that there's beauty in the comedy? There's beauty in the love and the shagginess. There will be blood is huge and imposing and important looking. And therefore, it must be. And that's sort of what I walked away from feeling. Yes. And I, I feel like the conversation has loosened up a little bit, which is nice. I appreciate well, that. I'll also say from reading the Discord, there's a feeling that this movie is an award bait picture out of all of his films. This is one that was going for something. I don't believe that anyone's making a movie for awards. Uh, oh, wait, yes. Yes, they definitely are. What? Yes. You yes, think that yes. they're just like, okay, all right, well, oh all right, God, let's just say this. Eddie Redmayne ever does that isn't like fun. I guess the thought is, I think people feel that this is a little bit further away from them. If you look at Variety, Variety says they rank all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. They say Magnolia is number one. There Will Be Blood is number two. If you look at Collider, right? Collider, great site. If you look at their number one, their number one is Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood at number two. Punch Drunk Love makes sense for Collider. If you look at Time Magazine, Time Magazine says the number one movie is There Will Be Blood. Number two, Phantom Thread. There's no real consensus on what is the best PTA movie. So I'm going to say... By virtue of that, it is not his best movie. Not his best because it's not agreed upon by everyone. You can't just make a statement, this is the best movie by everyone involved. I would put Boogie Nights first, Magnolia second. Those would be my top two. Maybe we should do Magnolia sometime. I would love would you, to do would Magnolia. You do, I love yeah? Magnolia. Could yeah. we do Magnolia? I would love to I'd love it. I would love to do Punch Drunk Love as well. But yet at the same time, like I found this comment from Kate Endearing. She wrote, American business and religion meet on the frontier? Will their relationship be parasitic or symbiotic or both? It is so beautiful and darkly comic and, at the very least, PTA's most space-worthy. An opportunity to talk about Daniel Day-Lewis and a very interesting year for movies. And I think that Kate really does have a point about the themes that he's engaging with very dark at the center of this movie. This, like, fundamental fundamental it's almost like the book of genesis of the foundation of america is what this movie is about you know like in the beginning there was business and there was religion and everything that has happened in this country that has gone very very awry ever since honestly tends to be about one of those two things often both and her pointing out that relationship of parasitism or symbiotism are they going to feed off of each other are they going to mirror each other are they going to take away from each other are they going to build each other up are these two forces that fuel us what is their relationship like at the very 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 core yeah i mean i, I love this i want to just add one other comment here from austin nixon i think this kind of encapsulates what you're saying too which is 
What could be a boring slog of a movie is kept intense and vibrant via performance and masterful directing. I'm always surprised by how entertaining this depressing and dark story of a little man who wanted to feel big is. And I love that description of the movie. I think that that's a really smart description because I do, I love this movie. Like I said, I was on the edge of my seat. I know I just went against it as being the best movie of anyone in it, but that doesn't mean it's not a great movie. And I do think that this is a movie where if I'm telling people to watch one of the best performances of all time, I'm definitely going to tell them to watch this movie because I, I think you have to see Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think that he's the reason why this movie is so damn entertaining. Like he embodies the soul of the movie. A Little Man Who Wanted to Be Big is a yeah. beautiful way of summarizing this film. And, and on kind of a related thing, Ben Montecalvo wrote in and he said, I remember leaving the theater and being utterly speechless. My friends and I drove home in silence trying to comprehend the magnitude of what we saw. It is just so powerful. Do we have calls? Yes. Yeah, I'd say There Will Be Blood is much better than Boogie Nights. Um, I know everyone loves Boogie Nights more. I think it's more fun for sure. But I think Boogie Nights is sort of a uh, an homage to Martin Scorsese films. There's the filmmaking is very Scorsese-ish if you watch it through that lens. Just uh, the close-ups, the fast dissolves, the tension, just everything about it is very Scorsese-ish. Whereas There Will Be Blood is very Kubrickian in that it's got all these long, slow shots. The story is very much like, I don't know, Barry Lyndon or something like that. And I don't think it's better because it's like Kubrick. I think it's better for the same reasons that a Kubrick film is arguably better than a Scorsese movie. Um, just more um, timeless, I guess, is probably what I'm looking for. Um, so, yeah, I would go with There Will Be Blood any day. Hi, um, this is Jared calling. Just listen to your episode about There Will Be Blood. And I think it is by far Paul Thomas Anderson's best film. It's probably my favorite film ever, other than Starship Troopers, which is quite a different movie. I think it's just an amazing film about relentlessness. And you didn't really mention it was like it has a lot to do with alcoholism because he's a complete alcoholic. Also, maybe about like being closeted gay in um, that time because. There's never with any women, and it's definitely a subtext in the movie, I think. But I got obsessed with that movie probably about, like, 2008, and I watched it so many times, and it has the best soundtrack of maybe any movie I've ever seen. And cinematography, everything about it, it's absolutely a fucking masterpiece. But I really enjoyed listening to the podcast, and keep it up. Thank you. Oh, wow. You know, I'd never thought about it in that way. Those are two fascinating readings. I think I could really see those. I don't know if they're going for that, though. Do you think they are? I mean, I like that reading of it. He is very much a man with no vulnerable human interest that he's willing to pursue without. He's a very much a man who doesn't seem to be looking for a romantic partner in the public world. He's looking for a family He's he's a very much a man who seems like there's only one way to have a family, and that's having a man that you're related to and not not other forms of family. So it's like he's taken other forms of family off the table. Yeah, I know he said alcoholism, but isn't alcoholism to a certain extent an addiction to a substance? But I think the substance that he's addicted to is work and success, right? They can they can manifest in a very similar way. He is so 
hell-bent on success and beating everybody else, you know, that he can't enjoy anything else. I mean, so I, I do think this is about a man addicted to blank. And I think that addicted to can be a metaphor for whatever, but I do think this is a man addicted to success. But it is interesting. Like the very first thing he does when he has his like adopted son in his hands is he gives the little baby booze. Yeah, but I think that that's just to shut him up. That's well, what people yeah. did back in the day. You know, it's like that was, you know, that, <laughs> that yeah, to get on the gums, right? Yeah, like, I don't even know if that even shows that he's a bad dad. If you did that now, it would show you're a bad dad. I think back then it was like, what are babies? Give them liquor, I know, they'll shut up. I know, like kids in England used to drink beer for breakfast? Yeah. Like in the 1700s, 1800s? Because it was considered a grain, like almost like fermented oatmeal, I guess. Like, yeah. congratulations, you're having a bowl of beer. I, you know, the human race didn't die out. We're still alive. I mean, we look, survived. All of our ancestors could have at one point been little kids who had beer for breakfast. Look, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> what did you think about that one comment earlier where he said that that's why all PTA movies are better than Scorsese movies? That that feels like Gauntlet Throne. Gauntlet yeah, Throne. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I don't even know if we could touch that with a very quick quip. I would just say that he said that so matter of factly that I just want to shine a light on it and say, wow, that's not something that everyone agrees with. And you said it like, well, everyone knows that peanut butter is made out of peanuts. I mean, I want to say that I admire his courage. Okay, so let's go to our our final one here. Uh, Children of Men, a movie that I think was the real underdog here. You know, this is a movie that I wasn't expecting to pop up on the list when we saw different things. Mulholland Drive was high up for a while, and I thought that was going to be our our fourth one for sure. But then we got Children of Men, and David Cohen writes, greatest film by one of our greatest directors, and outside the obvious stuff, there's a scene where Clive Owen smokes weed with Michael Caine and they listen to Ruby Tuesday, What's Not to Love. <laughs> and, you know, there really is something about this film that I think hits people in a certain way because, as Shane writes, it's a thoroughly millennial generation film. Out in 2006, it's when the first of the generation entered into adulthood and the protagonist's story sits within a world already fully built. The world includes global problems, pollution, religion, international conflict, bureaucracy, and daily routines that office, gig work, marijuana use, and even daily coffee can't fix. Any millennial I've met who has seen this is either terrified because it depicts a world too close to theirs or is relieved because they see a world which they are uh, working to avoid. But neither option denies that this movie illustrates an entire world. Boom. Gauntlet Throne, great description of this film and, and I think what it resonates with our audience. Yeah, yeah, I really love that. That was so thorough. And I think that was really well argued. And, and also... I feel like we saw that impact in a lot of the comments that we got. You know, Trevor Wright wrote, the first time I saw Children of Men, I sat in the theater through the credits, not waiting for an end scene, just because it sank its teeth into me and I could not get up until I processed it. And actually, Alex wrote in with almost the exact same memory of it, you know, top greatest theater experience of my life. When the credits rolled, I could not stop thinking, what did I just see? It made me feel like the possibilities of movies had changed. Oh, that's one of the greatest things I think a movie can make you feel, that the possibilities of movies have changed. Well, are movies different or are they allowed to say different things? Because we're talking, we go back and we've, what was that movie we talked about that you can't find anymore uh, about the soldiers coming home, right? Best years of our lives. Yes. 
you know, I think movies are always tackling interesting things. I think that, but I do think it's like when we discover them and how we discover them, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, like I remember, and I always use this example, but Roger Moore was my bond. I was like, I love Roger Moore. Sean Connery is boring. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, Sean Connery is the best. Like, that's an amazing James Bond performance. Like, you know, it's like, but you, whatever you're kind of born into, that's when you learn about something. That's when you see things for the first time. So I feel like this movie Ray represent going back to that first comment. Yes, this is the first movie that I related to. This is my version of 2001 or something like that. You know, a movie that spoke to me in a deeper, deeper way. Well, yeah. I mean, what I'm seeing from the comments here is how deeply this movie spoke to people on both in an intellectual and an emotional level. They're complimenting the intelligence of the film, but they're complimenting it in a way that feels like it's coming from the heart. You know, Courtney even writes it. Courtney wrote that she considers this to be a dystopian road movie that holds up on repeated viewings, even if my feelings don't. That ending breaks my heart every time. It makes me long for my dose of quietest, most accurately named product ever. When a movie can break your heart when you already know it's going to happen, that's power to me. That's definite power. Well, I like this comment here, which is from Stephen Palahawk, who says, Today, I chose darkness and chaos over humor and genius. Quaron's film presaged so many current phenomena, Britain's isolationism, war in Europe, the refugee crisis, a world forever changed by the public health threat. The invisible saviors at the film's ambiguous ending are indeed scientists without national affiliation. I'll throw out that there are these immersive one-take set pieces that have had an influence on the next decade of big-budget TV series, True Detective, Game of Thrones. This film has more to chew on than its genre trappings initially let on. And right, choosing darkness and chaos over humor and genius. That's right. You have to choose that to, to feel like this is the right movie for the list. All right, well, I guess now the question is to us, Amy, what belongs on this list? I know where I'm leaning. I know where the votes led. But I think that this decision is... Yes, we got the four by votes, but we also are hearing feedback after. And to me, I'm wrestling and I I would feel actually very okay with putting two on the list. I know we only said one, but there's a world in which I would say Children of Men and Roger Rabbit both belong on the list. I don't know if that's because we talked about them as bookends, but both of them represent something that we don't really have on the list. I think there's a lot of discourse about is There Will Be Blood the best PTA? Does it belong on the list? I think Hot Fuzz, is this the best Edgar Wright? There's a lot of arguments here. I, maybe I'm being too bold by saying we put two on the list because I, I then I'd maybe be remiss about Hot Fuzz, but I know that you feel differently about Hot Fuzz. Oh, it's, a, it's a battle. Wait, you just sprang that on me. I know. How dare you? How dare you just spring that on me that we could do two? What? I mean, because you're right. We do have the votes. The votes are very clear. I do love the votes. The votes came in favor of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, and people really, people really making the case beautifully, eloquently, you know, someone like Kalina writing in and saying, worthwhile choices all. But at the end of the day, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the most unlikely film that by some incredible confluence of circumstance and timing managed to be made. The only thing more surprising is the fact that it is incredibly well made and miraculously holds up 35 years later. I mean, I I love magic. I love it when magic comes together because going it back and talking about this history of this film, knowing I love this film, but not knowing how hard it was for it to be made, how strange it was that it was made the way that it was, it actually added a, no, a new level of appreciation for me in this film. 
I would have said that I loved this film to pieces before, but now I feel like I love it even double as like a magical flower that managed to sprout because it probably shouldn't have. And that's my favorite kind of film story. Matt McCree writes in, he says, while the other choices are great films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is unmatched, in my opinion, in film innovation. It does not take itself too seriously while also being sincere, which is rare and hard to achieve. I love that. That's beautiful. And then Matt kind of, you know, knocks the other ones off. He's like, the other movies on this list for me either fall under the category of Oscar bait, a category I have trouble feeling deeply connected to over time, or in the case of Hot Fuzz, a movie that you just have to be in the mood for to enjoy. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is, like a lot of Zemeckis' work, simply a great movie made for people who love movies. Paul, oh, a horrible thought that just appeared in my mind, which is, I have been an absolute tyrant. Every film director can only get one film on this list. I have really been hammering this home. Am I willing to take Back to the Future off to put Roger Rabbit on? Ooh, wow. That is a... That's a battle I don't want to have today. Well, I think we got to have it. That's what we're here for, dude. If you're going to spring this on me, I'm going to spring that on you. Are you willing to take... Yes. Really? I mean, I hate it. It's one of my favorite movies. But yes, for the greater good of the top 100, yes, I would take Back to the Future off to put Roger Rabbit on because I do believe that while Back to the Future is a great, fun, big movie, it may not be one of the best movies of all time. And I would say that in a battle, I would put Roger Rabbit on to replace Back to the Future and I would put Children of Men on as a fresh pick. (sighs) I mean, it hurts me to even have to say that out loud because I think that Back to the Future is a flawless movie. Yeah, in the way that we talked about. I I saw there was actually a really interesting conversation. I don't remember if we got into it or not. That was on the Facebook thread. That like someone showed Back to the Future to a group of like Gen Z kids. Yeah. And Gen Z kids were really horrified by the scene where uh, Biff comes and tries to rape Marty McFly's mom in the back of a car. Yes, Lori. It just that whole subplot of kind of like women in peril as a way of moving our characters motivations forward did not land at all with this okay. with like younger generations and i read that whole thread with a lot of interest because i just am of the back to the future generation and i hadn't really noticed that you know when it kind of like pulls something and you're like oh right that's what's happening here part of me gets that knee jerk but i love back to the future and i just said it's perfect and i actually still do think it's perfect but that's also true about that scene but i don't want to cancel something because of a scene but I'm having to be tested in longevity, and that hurts. You know, I want to make sure that we're not, like, canceling Back to the Future. We're making an argument of, if we had to pick one Zemeckis film, which is the one that's worthy of being on the list? And I do think that there's an argument to be made that it is Roger Rabbit over Back to the Future in what it represents from the point of view of cinema. Are we going to do this? Are we really going to do this? I'm, I'm down. Really? I don't know why you're getting me on a lucky day here. I'm I'm choosing chaos. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> it's on my letterbox top five, even though I've now changed my letterbox. I'm changing it to seasonal top fives because I thought it was more fun. I just feel like it's so immovable. It's like, I want to move around my top five. I don't want to just leave it uh, just in one place and locked in amber. I think if you're going to say put two films next to each other, would I rewatch Back to the Future a million times over Roger Rabbit? Absolutely. But do I think that Roger Rabbit is more important for the 
what it does for cinema. I do think so. I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but I, but you know what? I knew everyone agrees with me. This is the number one vote getter out of every movie. We asked everyone who listened to the show, the number one movie they picked is that. So I feel confident, even more confident in that. Uh, Children of Men is, is the least vote getter, but I will say after watching it, I also feel like it's important to represent. We don't have anything that represents like a dystopian future that is more representative of the world that we live in. And and can, if we're talking about describing our world to aliens, I would say that that is what's going on there. Yeah. But maybe, yeah. maybe we just keep it simple. Maybe I'm doing too much. Maybe we'll let this conversation continue. No, uh, no, yeah. no, 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 Paul, no. All right. Children of Men was the least of the four, but it was still in the top four. Let's settle the score this way. Okay. Children of Men goes on. There Will Be Blood makes me feel like we should probably do episodes on Magnolia and possibly also Phantom Thread. Okay. Yeah. So let's do that. Let's keep, let's fill out this because I think like with that whole conversation, we really open up the can of worms of like the shifting rankings. Yeah. Punch Drunk Love. I will watch that movie and see if I can finally love that movie. I've really always had an issue with it. However, since There Will Be Blood is an epic it just flat out epic and it deserves to be seen in an epic, epic, epic style. I am so excited that Paul and I can announce that we are actually going to be showing There Will Be Blood on one of the best theaters in town in Los Angeles uh, very soon in just a couple of weeks. The American Cinematheque here is having a festival that they're calling Friend of the Fest, where podcasts that you know, love movies are coming and presenting things. And we, Unspooled, will be presenting There Will Be Blood at the Arrow Theater on Monday, August 28th, 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m., show up, get your popcorn on. We're going to be like, yo, this movie should be seen on an epic scale for all the reasons that we've just discussed. And then we'll kill Back to the Future, a thing I thought I'd never thought we'd do, but we will kill Back to the Future and we'll put on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Deal? I like it. I'm in. Okay. All right, so... There we go, people. This is, you did this. You took it off. <laughs> say that a little bit less like an abusive dad, please. Or say it <laughs> this more. This is your say fault. <laughs> this is your fault. No, but I mean, honestly, this is a great month. I always like checking in with everybody who listens to the show. We've been here for five years because of you. The show continues to grow because of you. So it's really important for us to always do movies that... You want us to do as well. And I think you spoke. We will continue to come to you, continue to share the show with your friends. And we just want to say thank you for the last five years. And clearly, you know what you're doing because you created a great month of cinema. You really did. Every week, I looked forward to watching what you picked. And I also want to say we kept a list of every other film that everybody else also submitted that did not make it into the top four. And I'm very excited to be getting through some of those, too, over the next couple of years. And I want to say my own thank you. Thank you for letting me have five years to hang out with Paul and talk movies at him every single yes. week. It has been such a joy doing this we, show. I we love, love it. it so much. Same. Um, and I want to give a shout out to our amazing producer, Josh, who's been with us from day one. Day one. Back in the beginning. So, you know, putting this show together when it was just the AFI list. And now we have new producers on here. We have Jess Cisneros, who's amazing. We got a great, we have a great team. We love them all. Next week, Paul and I had an episode planned, but the news about Paul Rubin's death at the age of 70 uh, hit both of us with a pretty hard wallop. He is an artist, a performer, a comedian, 
so fundamental to my life. I actually don't know who I would be if I hadn't grown up watching a lot of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Um, so for that reason, we're going to take a pause on what we are going to do, get back to that in a second, and just straight away do a movie that we really should have done a long time ago. We should have done Pee Wee's Big Adventure from 1995. The one with the bike, the one with the Alamo, the heavy hitter. Warner Brothers is proud to present the story of a guy. Morning. I'm here. And his bike. James Bond kind of stuff. Together for the first time in their first big movie. I meant to do that. I say we kill it. Yeah! I see we let him go. It is beyond past time to honor Pee-wee and also to do a proper, proper Burton, because I think up until now, we've only done Nightmare Before Christmas, which is not exactly a Burton, even though his name is in the title. So join us for that. Join us for that. Join us to celebrate Paul Rubens, the man who I think touched all of us listening out there um, and will be very, very, very missed. And we're so lucky he lives on in everything that he made. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com.